0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I am delighted to uh, introduce uh, Dr. Nev Jones, uh, who will be talking about intervention engagement for transitional age youth. Uh, Nev is a mental health services researcher, consultant and trainer, and currently a postdoctoral fellow at Stanford University. Uh, she will soon be beginning a position as a research scientist for the Mental Health Services Oversight and Accountability Commission. Uh, so we're we're taking over. That's great. Um, uh, Dr. Jones's work has focused on systems approaches to community mental health transformation, as well as peer involvement in leadership and leadership in service development and evaluation. Uh, previously, she directed the Lived Experience Research Network and Chicago Hearing Voices, and currently sits on the boards of the Community Health. Uh, for Asian Americans in the Bay Area Hearing Voices Network. Uh, so we're delighted to have her, and I hope you enjoy her presentation. Thank you. So what I am um, speaking about is actually a piece of the overall TAE project that we did um, in collaboration with um, Todd and Vicki. And um, this involved basically a literature review and an evaluation of kind of the level of evidence available for different types of interventions. Um, my partner collaborator um, in this um, endeavor was Sarah McMenamin, who's an who's a assistant professor here at UCSD. Okay, so I don't want to talk very much about myself, but I do want to say that I very much um, come at this from the perspective of a peer as well as somebody who's been very, very involved in community mental health and in doing consultation um, directly in community mental health settings. So not as kind of the stereotypical removed academic um, researcher. Okay, so just to kind of set the stage and contextualize um, this sort of review and evidence review, um, we can... You know, many many people have commented on the fact that TAE-specific interventions are seriously under-researched. As Todd mentioned, there's really no comparison to child mental health services and adult mental health services in terms of how much research is available. Um, And frequently what happens as a result is that um, practices and services in the TAE arena are based on sort of extrapolation from the adult and child evidence base. And we don't actually in many cases know um, if these interventions have the same effects on transition age youth. The sort of specific opportunities and challenges of the teen period often go unaddressed. And examples of this would be, you know, transitioning to independent living. Literally things like sort of learning how to cook, learning how to navigate social life sort of outside or beyond the family home. Post-secondary education, developmentally specific milestones, right? So there's sort of socially and culturally normative things that we do as young adults. Um, that are not the same um, as older adults or mature adults. And some some additional challenges in assessing the TAY evidence base um, include really uneven research funding. um, And there's, you know, I think there's various things that contribute to that. Um, There's a lot more money available for biomedical and pharmacological research, so that's one piece. There's also more money available for interventions that are initially tested in academic settings. So that might be an academic outpatient clinic, which is going to tend to be. Staffed by psychiatrists and clinical psychologists, not the people who run community mental health services. Um, and research paradigms often don't fit some intervention areas. Probably the best example of this is naturalistic peer support. Um, so a lot of arguments that we really cannot fairly randomize people to peer supports; so that that's not a fair test of real-world impact. Um, and then there tends to be a focus on what I call pocket interventions rather than systems level interventions. So rather than looking at the entire kind of orientation or clinical ethos of a provider setting, we're looking at some little micro piece um, of that, so that could be a specific clinical approach like cognitive behavioral therapy um, rather than looking at how all the clinicians across a team are interacting with each other and with their clients. And then um, assessment and review of values-driven interventions is really, really underdeveloped. And I would include a lot of peer supports in that category, so where, you know clients or family members are saying, "This is really important to us versus, "This is really important to academic clinicians and researchers." Some additional challenges in identifying evidence-based practices. So I'm not sure of people's level of familiarity with this, but there's actually multiple evidence-based practice registries and algorithms or ways of deciding what is or isn't an evidence-based practice. So actually the phrase evidence-based practice doesn't have a singular meaning. We cannot talk about it's a evidence-based practice because we actually have registries and systems that are disagreeing on um, how particular interventions are categorized. Um, and then the evidence base may or may not apply to particular settings or groups right so if we've developed an intervention that was tested in you know um, rural Vermont with a you know in basically almost entirely white population and then we move that intervention to California and try to implement it in an extremely ethnically diverse community um, it's not nece- doesn't necessarily have an applicable evidence base Then we have evidence-based practices by declaration. Um, So the CMS, the Center for Medicaid Services, actually just in 2007 declared that peer specialists were evidence-based, that was their language, um, without any type of review process. And and then again this confuses providers, confuses folks working in community settings because this language gets tossed around a lot and it's not always clear where it's coming from or what it really means. An absence of evidence should not be seen as an intervention being non-evidence-based, right? So it may simply not have been evaluated yet, or submitted to, for instance, SAMHSA's evidence-based practice registry for review by SAMHSA. SAMHSA's review process is also extremely lengthy, so it can take, in some cases, years. And so you may already have systematic reviews or determinations by other systems saying this is evidence-based, and SAMHSA doesn't yet list it that way. The funding of research and evaluation, again, is, is often very political, Um, There's also a general lack of evidence regarding comparative effectiveness. And in many ways, PCORI, the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute, was created in order to address this gap and really this major need in terms of services. So what comparative effectiveness means is we have this intervention um, that is oriented towards improving employment outcomes for consumers and a different intervention. And we need to compare them to each other other, not just compare an intervention to treatment as usual. And this becomes really, really important, I think, for community-based providers who are trying to decide between different interventions or different programs that kind of address the same need. Cost-effectiveness is also, you know, often really under-researched. There is a general lack of evidence on personalized intervention strategies, and so personalized medicine has become a big buzzword across virtually every other area of medicine. And sometimes it gets thrown around in the context of mental health services, um, but you know, often not 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 in a way that really has any sort of meaning or substance behind it. So it's very rare that clinicians are sort of administratively encouraged to look at an individual and think about what evidence-based or promising practices are the best fit for that person. Um, A lot of the time they're encouraged to just apply a blanket intervention. And that again becomes really critical to evaluate in the context of very diverse communities um, including, you know, LGBT youth as well as, you know, ethnic racial um, minority youth. So I I advocate strongly for thinking critically about evidence-based practices, really thinking critically about all practices. We always need to be attentive to limitations to the generalizability of evidence-based practices or, again, really any practice or any service. so, for instance, we want to always ask questions like where was the intervention studied, with what population, who was excluded or included. The degree of mismatch between the samples in clinical trials and real world clinical populations is notorious. At Stanford, I've been part of a team called CREAM, and we've been doing um, systematic reviews across every area of psychiatry as well as multiple non psychiatric areas. And across our reviews, the rates of exclusion range from 70 to 90 percent. Huge gaps between who is actually being studied in the context of clinical trials and again these real world clinical populations. Then we want to ask if there's other reasons to question generalizability. So maybe the median age of, you know, an adult mental health intervention was 40 or 45 or maybe even 50, right? Are there reasons to suspect that that intervention is going to have a different appeal or lack of appeal to youth, is going to affect them differently, is going to have less efficacy, Feasibility questions. So, does the evidence based practice actually fit a given service setting? So, for example, if we're looking at cognitive behavioral therapy for psychosis, which was developed primarily in the UK in Academic clinics led by highly, highly trained and skilled doctoral level clinical psychologists is that necessarily the right intervention for a social worker who's doing primarily outreach, meeting with people in their homes, and simultaneously responsible for? Um, buying them groceries and making sure that, you know, their housing needs are met, et cetera, et cetera. And then finally, ecological validity. Does the evidence-based practice actually work the same way in a real-world community mental health setting? So finally, thinking a little bit about outcomes measurement as well, I think we always want to ask if the outcomes that were measured or that were used in the research are actually the outcomes of interest in an applied setting. An example would be if we want to improve educational outcomes in our community mental health setting. And we're turning to vocational interventions that have been shown to impact employment but not at education that's arguably you know, an, an inappropriate intervention, or at least the evidence is not actually there. So it may be an evidence-based practice for one type of outcome that doesn't mean that it is suddenly evidence-based for another outcome. We need to think about who's choosing the outcome, so again and again, and this is partly because academic settings tend to drive um, choices in terms of outcomes measurement, is that we see See, um, we see clinicians and academics selecting outcomes which are largely symptomatological um, in orientation or focus rather than outcomes which we repeatedly see matter the most to peers and clients, which tend to be functional recovery, social engagement, um, as well as employment and work and school. And then there's um, you know, trade-offs that we always need to consider between using an established evidence-based practice and maybe turning to something that's newer and more innovative and maybe will actually have more impact on the outcome we care about but doesn't yet have that established um, evidence base. Okay, so really quickly going to go through why engage intervention and engagement matters. I think mostly I'm probably preaching to the choir here. This is a crucial developmental period. There's much higher risk of irreversible adverse events um, during you know, tr- the transitional period. Suicide is one of them. Adult criminal offenses is another. Um, it's a unique opportunity also to make a difference for people when they are first coming in contact with the mental health system. Why the evidence base matters, again, really briefly, not all interventions are created equal, um, right? So we do want to use the interventions that are going to benefit our clients the most. Um, A lack of evaluation or research can lead to a, a loss of a lot of critical information. And here I'm not just talking about academic research, but also internal evaluation quality improvement efforts that allow us to optimize services, patient outcomes, to identify what's going wrong, and to identify subpopulations that are not being served. Um, We need to be able to prove that interventions work or justify them often to policymakers as well as funders and we can't lose sight of this. Um, And and, and also along similar lines, maintaining public support for services. And I think everybody's probably um, aware to some extent of the little Hoover Commission report and of some criticisms of the MHSA. Um, I suspect that everybody in this room also knows how incredibly important that MHSA funding is. We need to preserve it. We need to maintain public trust um, in how this money is spent and how it's affecting Californians. So our review, we um, you know we had a limited amount of time, a relatively limited budget, so we couldn't do everything. It would be a gargantuan undertaking to try to review all the evidence for every possible type of intervention that would apply to transition-aged youth. So we selected five domains, multidisciplinary teams, vocational services, housing, peer-led interventions, and family services. We did not cover medication management, jail diversion, or criminal justice justice system involvement, primary substance use interventions, primary prevention, or physical health and integrated care. That is not a judgment of you know, a lack of importance of these areas. We just had to um, be more circumscribed about what we could cover. I'm not going to go into, um, uh, so the next slide is going to break down the evidence or the evidence-based categorizations that we came up with, which ranged from um, well-supported to insufficient. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, but these slides will be posted and I encourage people who are interested to, to come back and review them. Okay, so these are all the these are the exact criteria which we ended up using, which again did not necessarily map onto what SAMHSA is used or what other evidence based registries have used. Okay, so first, multidisciplinary teams. So we kind of understood this as a family of interventions that utilize some sort of a multidisciplinary team, and this typically would include a case manager, somebody who is in charge of medication management, vocational rehab, um, sometimes therapy, sometimes group therapy, peer specialists, so there can be, you know, various components. Often is taking a holistic or sort of whatever it takes approach to serving clients. And we included in our review of this area process approaches like transition to independence process, wraparound systems of care. Um, We included what we conceptualized as kind of clinical frameworks. So not necessarily just sort of individual cognitive behavioral therapy, but thinking about how cognitive behavioral therapy might be applied across a team and or in settings that, that vary in intensity. Um, And in terms of um, just some concrete examples, specialty early intervention for psychosis services we included here, like PrEP in the Bay Area, full-service partnerships, and assertive community treatment teams were all included. So as you might guess, this is, you know actually a well-supported area for adults, especially in terms of, like, very, very rock-solid evidence-based practices like um, assertive community treatment. Um, The evidence base for some of the newer team-based interventions, in part because they're newer, is less clear. Um, so there's also, you know, less evidence for lower-intensity multidisciplinary teams. So sometimes I've heard people in the community refer this as as, as, communi- as assertive community treatment light, um, right, which could be considered low-fidelity ACT, but also maybe it's ACT for people who aren't meeting the severity criteria for ACT. So just some brief considerations. Um, in, in many cases, because you know, because our evaluation was of team-based, multi-component programs, the exact mechanisms and critical ingredients um, were unclear. The findings in terms of cost-effectiveness are often much more mixed than the research on effectiveness. Um, Long-term outcomes, disappointingly, are not nearly as strong as post-intervention outcomes. This is particularly true for early intervention in psychosis, where now the the, the 10-year follow-up data is showing us a loss of almost all the gains that are initially achieved in terms of early intervention. So we definitely need to keep our eye on the long-term picture as well. Um, The comparative effectiveness of different clinical frameworks is actually unclear because this is understudied. So, for example, using a sort of motivational interviewing general strategy as part of a team versus a cognitive behavioral approach. We don't have a clear answer to that. There's a general lack of data on clinical approaches applied by frontline staff, right? So often bachelor's level or master's level social workers, therapists who don't have the same kind of ultra specialized clinical training maybe as a clinical psychologist and often program length is unclear because these are relatively expensive interventions we don't really know how long they should go okay so vocational services next Um, so these are you know supports aimed at improving basically employment and or educational um, attainment Um, Examples of employment interventions, probably most people in the room are familiar with individual placement and support, which is kind of the um, evidence-based approach to employment. And then in terms of education, Trevor is going to be covering this a lot more in one of the breakout sessions, but there's no clear, established, evidence-based practice. Um, Recent reviews of the evidence base for supported education have observed that, that the evidence we do have is often really out of date or of poor quality, and there's a major need for additional research and development here. So in terms of our review, we felt that employment was well-supported um, for adults, promising for Te, education is really just emerging. Um, Considerations, so here going back to some of my earlier comments on outcomes measurement, um, quality of employment outcomes is often not what's being measured. It's are people in some form of competitive employment, and we're not looking at are they really unhappy, are they ghettoized, are they low wage, are they working in what community practitioners refer to as the, the three Fs, food filing and filth. Um, educational attainment, we know, is particularly critical to long-term employment quality, um, as well as quality of life outcomes, um, you know, long-term marriage or partnership status. So many, many outcomes that we care of, really care about longitudinally are directly linked to educational attainment, and yet it's been deprioritized. Okay, Housing, so as you saw um, on the initial slide regarding the survey, housing is a major issue in California. It's a major issue for TAY providers. Most of the interventions that have been developed, or at least with the strongest evidence base, are specifically targeting homeless populations or those at risk of homelessness, so this is kind of the caveat to keep in mind. And then there's many examples of supported housing. Scatter site using um, vouchers, dedicated cluster site-supported Housing group homes, short short short-term transitional housing, SROs or board and care facilities. Um, So, and and particularly looking at sort of again the evidence-based leader in terms of supported um, housing, which is the the Pathways Housing First model. We determined that it's. Supported for adults, emerging for Tay, and this is, you know, mostly because studies have not been carried, carried out within the Tay population yet, or not many studies. Um, and even in terms of adults, we're not necessarily, most of the evidence has focused on, again, this uh, sort of the homeless population, not necessarily folks with other types of, of housing-related needs. Here in particular, um, youth-specific considerations have been really understudied. So what um, sort of socially normative housing looks like for young people versus mature adults or older adults. So the obvious example is that a lot of young people live with roommates. Um, You know, they crash on the floor of an expensive apartment in San Francisco or L.A. So it's not necessarily clear that we should be measuring um, good outcomes for this population in exactly the same way. And then interestingly the pros and cons of remaining in a family home are understudied and again this is increasingly the norm for a large percentage of young adults in this country. Um, Housing is increasingly expensive and out of reach so people stay at home. Is that good? Is that bad? How do we um, sort of take stock of that? Peer-led interventions, um, so again, a family of interventions and supports that are led or designed by peers. We didn't really specifically break out peer specialists versus peer-led programs in the review, and I think there are different conceptual issues at play here, um, which we'll cover a little bit more in one of the breakout sessions later this afternoon, but basically, peer specialists, arguably, what we really need to, all that we needed to establish, which has been established is that when performing the same duties as like a case manager or other frontline staff, they do just as well. And that's been established. What hasn't been shown necessarily is an improvement of peer specialists over regular case managers. Then a different case can be made there for greater cost effectiveness of peers because they're paid less, which is a political problem unto itself. Um, So some examples include peer support groups, wellness recovery action plan groups, peer-run crisis respites, peer-run TAY activities, like running a music group or doing some sort of outreach or creative activity, um, etc. So... The level of evidence for adults, we decided, was ambiguous. The reason why is actually a, a meta-analysis, a kind of pooling of data from multiple um, peer-led intervention studies actually came to the conclusion that they were not more effective than comparators. There was a competing meta-analysis that came out within the same time frame that came to the opposite conclusion. So there's, there's competing evidence, and we didn't have the time to dig into the details of every little study and, and sort of figure out what's really going on it's clear that for specific peer interventions like RAP the evidence base is very strong so it gets much more problematic when you're trying to generalize across a very large and diverse group of of interventions and programs I also want to point out that there's an abundance of unstudied small but seemingly very innovative and um, promising um, peer-run programs and that is especially true throughout the state of California Finally, family services. So our definition, again, was a family of interventions that are focused on family support, outreach, or involvement. Again, a very diverse kind of group of different types of programs and interventions, um, and with varying levels of, of evidence for the specific interventions. So, um, examples that folks in the audience may be very familiar with are multifamily groups or multifamily psychoeducational groups, and then policies that encourage and facilitate family involvement in TAE services. So, for adults we determine that the, that the evidence or that the, these programs are generally well supported and and they're kind of drawing on not only support for particular interventions but also the overall empirical support for the fact that family involvement is really critical to uh, improving youth and client outcomes tay again promising it's well supported for multifamily groups but there just hasn't been as much dedicated research So summary and challenges, so as I've described, there's kind of a very uneven evidence base. We have more evidence in some areas by far than for others. That doesn't mean that they're necessarily less valuable. Um, there's a number of kind of remaining um, and, and very important questions and challenges so one is how to deconstruct these negative or neutral studies of peer support is this really a, a criticism of or a critique of peer support in terms of its full potential or the way that specific programs are being implemented or you know, lack of quality within the development of the programs that aren't working because then we see some programs that obviously are Um, And then what makes for effective or ineffective peer-led programs? I think everybody in this room can probably agree that it's not enough to just have your own lived experience to be able to work very, very effectively with other peers and, and clients. So how do we go beyond that? Um, How can we develop a strong evidence base and effective programs for increasing educational achievement? This is just a major problem area facing the Tay population. Again, really glad that um, Dr. Manthe is here to address that. How can we address chronic housing shortages, particularly pressing question in the state of California, um, and especially in areas where housing costs are spiraling out of control? Then this question of, impact being sustained or not sustained over the long term. So this, I think, just quite distressing evidence on the loss of gains from early intervention programs that don't pan out um, in terms of long term improvement. Okay, so getting local. So just a few concluding comments. So I think the MHSA really provides amazing opportunities for developing and sustaining innovative and effective taste services. And having come from the state of, of Illinois prior to moving out to California, it is a night and day difference. It is you know, astounding and amazing to me what can be done in the state of California. None of these resources or possibilities um, are available in Illinois. There's tremendous innovation across the state. Um, And there's the potential, therefore, because we have the MHSA, because we have funding for evaluation in many cases, and because we have, you know, support for innovation, the opportunity to establish an evidence base with truly national and international implications. Um, I think there's a lot of potential for systems and agency level policy and transformation as well as individual interventions. And then there's high levels of peer and family leadership throughout the state, certainly in terms of how the MHSOAC operates, um, less so as I'll say in the next slide in terms of evaluation and research. And there's a much stronger emphasis actually on campus mental health than we find in, in most states. Limitations and challenges. So as we saw, there's sort of underdeveloped evaluation and QI in many counties and programs and also just a lot of variability. Some counties who are doing amazing you know, QI work and some who are doing you know, almost nothing. Um, uneven use of established evidence-based practices, often without fidelity checks. Um, interestingly, we asked an open-ended question on the survey about evidence-based practices and you know, some of the... The sort of self-filled-in responses were definitely not in the sort of clearly established evidence-based category. So people don't necessarily even know, I think, what is or isn't. And as I have explained earlier, um, that's kind of an open question, and it's not surprising that it's so confusing. Um, the adaptation of evidence-based practices to youth, as well as to ethnically racially um, diverse communities, the trans community, I think as well, is you know very a big community in California and like really in need of dedicated kind of attention. And there's, as we know, silos and fragmentation across systems and also across counties, which is I think a a particularly pressing um, issue in California. And then finally, there are these sort of structural and non-mental health systems barriers, such as a a lack of affordable housing. Okay. So moving forward, I'm sort of, you know, repeating um, some of what um, Todd already said in the initial presentation. But I think there's a lot of concrete opportunities here to partner with researchers as well as government. So, of course, I say that as a a soon-to-be Oversight and Accountability Research staff member um, and to track outcomes To address and improve local evaluation, QI, and sort of participate in the collection of common statewide metrics, which is a lot of what the OAC is trying to pursue to address silos and increase coordination across systems and counties. And so again, not just across county lines, but also for instance between schools and the mental health system, between post-secondary education and the mental health system. Figuring out how to replicate successful programs in other counties. So actually when I was doing this literature review, I found some just really amazing stuff going on in California. And then you look at a different county and they seemingly have no awareness that that's happened one county over or that there are these amazing models that they could build on rather than reinventing the wheel. Um, And then focusing our energy on unmet needs and priority populations. And although we didn't cover every area of relevance, criminal justice um, involvement being a huge one, I think we definitely identified areas in which there's a huge need to to do more evaluation and research. Okay. So sorry why talked longer than i than I intended, which almost always happens, but I hope you guys have questions okay, so the first question the first question is just about um, research regarding the loss of long term gains sustained for early intervention in psychosis i 'm um, not sure exactly how to do this, but if there 's a way that we can post actual the full text of articles on the Tqi website i 'm very happy to, to, to actually just post these articles so that people can look at them. Um, example of understudied innovative small TAY services which are producing, producing milestones. Models working in counties. Um, so I think just effective small TAY services. Um, so I mean examples are both project return and peers which are peer run organizations, um, one in the Bay Area, one in LA are doing I think a lot of amazing work focused on the Tay population, led by the Tay population, um, much less going on in those programs in the way of evaluation. Um, in San Jose and Santa Clara County um, some really innovative work running um, residential facilities so um, yeah so, th- so there's a lot going on and I do as Todd said like more sharing of that would be amazing Um, let's see potential systems change at agency level Um, (laughs) so that's a huge question Um, whoever asked the potential systems change at the agency level please come and talk to me Um, a lot of the work I do actually consulting outside of the state of California is looking at this issue but it's it's huge and complicated I do have a lot of ideas we're almost out We don't have evidence that the inclusion of a peer specialist can increase the effectiveness of multidisciplinary teams yet. There's some emerging um, evidence on assertive community treatment. There is absolutely nothing in terms of early intervention in psychosis. In fact, there's no research on peers in early intervention in psychosis period. And the presentation will be posted. um, And the details of the evidence-based practice review criteria are A, You know, the the exact criteria we used are in this PowerPoint. And also, I think, I'm guessing that the the full literature review and review can be posted on the website. So there's a lot more detail there. Um, And I don't think there's a most authoritative source for evidence-based practices out there. And in part, it depends on how that claim to be an evidence-based practice is being used. So the implications of being listed in SAMHSA's registry are different from, for example, the state of California out of the University of California runs a new evidence-based practice registry that is not going to have the same clout as SAMHSA and has different criteria. But, yeah. Oh, so far. Um, Are psychotropic meds really evidence based for Tay? I mean this is a huge issue and and some of you probably are aware of the widespread use of antipsychotics among youth in California in the foster care system. This is a major legal issue. There's essentially no evidence base at all that antipsychotics should be used on youth without any psychotic disorder as sort of a form of behavioral control. And there's uh, there's lawsuits in process and already being filed. Um, And I think they their academic psychiatrists most of them would you know would be equally sort of critical of what's happening and that you know opens up a bigger issue about the use of medications among youth um okay and yeah oh yeah sorry um Ari, the meta-analyses, please summarize main findings competing results on peer services. Yeah, right. Again, it would be better to post these um, so that you can see exactly what people did. And, of course, there's different inclusion-exclusion criteria often being used. Um, And, you know, in some cases, a focus on just a particular type of peer-led intervention. Um, Often in these sorts of, certainly in these meta-analyses, qualitative evidence, evidence on, you know, the effects of naturalistic programs is just completely excluded. So really to sort through all of that, you know, it takes a lot of energy and a lot of critical thinking. And you know, part of that probably comes down to where you stand in terms of what evidence you think matters and how much you also think that sort of you know peer involvement and peer leadership is, you know, also a values-based or rights-based um, kind of intervention type. So okay, so I think that I blitzed through those. Please come up and talk to me during the breaks, and, and we can discuss these issues more. But thank you all so much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.